done this cookie free donation uh, fundraiser. So there are cookies downstairs. You're welcome to take cookies. You're welcome to eat cookies. If you feel led to give, you can give to the youth group. All the money goes to our winter retreats that we do. So we go to district's youth conference, which is put on by the district uh, of the Evangelical Preachers, the Forest Lakes District that we are a part of. That is in January. And then also the youth group goes to Forest Springs in February. Um, for a winter retreat. So if you would like to support the youth group, you're welcome to donate. Please do not feel that you need to, but uh, we appreciate all donations. So there are some jars downstairs. You can just uh, put your money in there. Um, if you have questions or anything about the cookies, talk to the students because they made them all. So um, also they decorated them. So that would, you know, just wanted to clear up anything about all the, the amount of sprinkles that are on those things. But um, uh, yeah, if you have any questions, uh, please talk to a youth, and yeah, hope you guys enjoy the cookies.
Would you be glorified by all that take place here this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to now light our third Advent calendar. We're going to invite the Sharp family to come up and do that for us. morning we celebrate the third Sunday of Advent. In Advent we prepare our hearts to celebrate the coming of the Messiah as we ponder what it would have been like for the Jewish people as they waited for the Messiah to come. On this third Sunday of Advent we celebrate the joy that the Advent brings. In Luke 2 10 through 14 we read, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. These verses remind us that the coming of the Savior is a cause for great joy for all the people. Today, we light the third Advent candle, the candle of joy. represents the joy that we have when we trust in Jesus, knowing that he came to be our Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy that comes from knowing Jesus. This morning we rejoice that you did not leave us in our sin, but sent your Son to be the Savior of the world.
the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. Come the long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release thee, let us find our rest in thee. These opening lines of a hymn by Charles Wesley capture the spirit of Advent, in which we anticipate and celebrate with joy Christ's coming as the Savior of the world.
worthy of all adoration, of all our praise. Pray that we come to your word this morning as we continue in this Advent season that we would adore you, that our hearts would be inclined to adoring and praising and glorifying you. Praise on Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A couple, a couple months ago, in one of my sermons, I talked about how there's a lot of children's books that I find a little bit annoying. Right? In particular, I mentioned it's like the Pete the Cat books as books that drive me crazy. And I figured like, you're probably just all dying to know more about my children's book preferences, so I'll tell you a little bit more this morning. Right? And so I, I can't stand Pete the Cat, right? but on the other end of the spectrum, probably like the most popular author among everyone in our house of children's books is a man named Mo Willems, that guy right there. So he's written a couple popular series in our household. The most popular series of his is a series of books called The Elephant and Piggy Books. They're, they're great. He's also written, uh, well, he's known for some books about a pigeon. So it looks like this. Those are great as well. He's also written three books about this character called Knuffle Bunny. And then the first Knuffle Bunny book, the one on the screen here, there's this dad, and he, this dad takes his young daughter, Trixie, out on some errands, and one of the errands is to go to a laundromat. And while at the laundromat, Trixie's beloved stuffed animal, Knuffle Bunny, accidentally gets placed in the laundry machine with all the dirty clothes. And the dad doesn't realize it, right? He's a typical oblivious dad, and he just doesn't realize it. And so they start walking home while the clothes wash, and as they're walking home, Trixie starts to have a meltdown. But Trixie can't talk, and so the dad has no idea what's going on, doesn't know why she's melting down. Finally, they arrive at home. The mom comes out and sees Trixie melting down, and her first words are, like, where is Knuffle Bunny? Right. Like, of course, the mom would immediately be able to identify the cause of, of the meltdown while the dad's over there being oblivious. Right. And as a dad... I'd be offended if it wasn't so accurate. <laughs> and so like, they figure this out. They figure out that Trixie's melting down because Knuffle Bunny got left behind in the laundromat. And so the whole family runs back to the laundromat and they proceed to look everywhere for Knuffle Bunny. But they can't, they can't find it. Like, they look all over the laundromat, can't find it until the dad finally stops the washing machine he pulls out all these sopping wet clothes that are over the floor, and he finds Knuffle Bunny in, in amongst the clothes. Right? And so you can see that she's happy. There's Knuffle Bunny. Sob right? And I thought about Knuffle Bunny and this book this week after preparing this sermon because ultimately this book, Knuffle Bunny, is a story about a father willingly meeting the relatively mundane need of a child. For those of us who have been in this situation where we've had a child lose their beloved stuffed animal, right, it feels urgent in the moment, right? Because the child's screaming and wailing and wants their stuffed animal. So we feel like we have to find it immediately. Right? But in the big picture, right, it's a relatively mundane concern. Right? The child's not going to die if they don't find the stuffed animal, even if it feels like it in that, in that moment. 
And yet, like in this story, like the father sees Trixie's need. And out of love for Trixie, he goes out of his way to meet this relatively mundane need. And in, in 2 Kings chapter 6, where we're going to be this morning, we see God the Father do the same thing through the prophet Elisha. So in, in 2 Kings chapter 6, like there's two stories going on. In, the, in both stories, we see God being present and God meeting the needs of his children. And in the first story, we see God, like, in, like the father in Knuffle Bunny, meeting a relatively small need of one of his children. And then in the second story, we see God meeting a far greater, more monumental need. So all together this morning, if you watch this whole chapter, what we see is that God is present, God is with us, both in the mundane things of life and in the monumental things of life. God is present in both the mundane and the monumental. So to say that, we're going to look at 2 Kings this morning, starting in verse 1. So one day, a group of prophets came to Elisha, and they told him, As you can see, this place where we meet with you is too small. Let's go down to the Jordan River, where there are plenty of logs. There we can build a new place for us to meet. All right, he told them, go ahead. Please come with us, someone suggested. I will, he said. So he went with them. When they arrived at the Jordan, they began cutting down trees. But as one of them was cutting down a tree, his axe had fell into the river. Oh, sir, he cried. It was a borrowed axe. And so these these prophets have been meeting in a place, and it's too small. So they decide they're going to undertake a building project. They're going to build a new, bigger place to meet. But unlike what would happen today in our time for most people, they they don't hire a contractor to do the work for them, and they don't... They don't go to Menard and buy the lumber. Right? They, they go down to the Jordan River. They're going to they're gonna cut down trees for themselves. They're going to mill the trees and the logs for themselves. And then they're going to use that lumber to build their own meeting place. And that would be a pretty audacious undertaking, even in our own age. Right? Like I know we have a lot of, of talented builders and craftsmen and lumberjack types in this church. Right? And yet, we, and we certainly have like a far far higher percentage than your typical church. And yet, if we decided at the church we needed more space, I don't think anyone's going to say, hey, like, why don't we just go up back, cut down some trees, and build it ourselves? Like, that's not what we're going to do. Like, that would be a ton of work. And that's what the advantage of, of chainsaws and power tools and skid steers and other power equipment. Right? Like the most advanced tool these prophets had were axes with iron heads. And even these were expensive. Right? Like today, you can, you can buy an axe of reasonable quality for less than $100. Right? So if you're, you're borrowing one from a friend and you broke it, it wouldn't be financially disastrous. But that was not the case in the time of Elisha. Right? Like Elisha lived in the relatively early stages of the Iron Age in Israel. And Israel kind of lagged behind its neighbors in developing iron forging technology. In fact, not long before this, in, in 1 Samuel, we read about how the Israelites had to go down to the, the hated Philistines to have their iron tools sharpened because there wasn't a single blacksmith in all of Israel who could work with iron. 
I also say, like, at this time in Israel, iron tools were still fairly expensive. So losing a, a borrowed axe head was kind of a big deal. Right? So you can just imagine, like, how the prophet in this passage must have felt as he watched his borrowed axe head fall into the bottom of the river. Like, like how am I going to explain that to the man I borrowed this axe head from? How am I going to pay him back? It's not like it would have been easy to just kind of dig around and, and find it. One time when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 or so, my cousin asked my dad if he could borrow my dad's boat and go fishing with me. My dad said, sure, and it was going to be great. I was all excited. There was just one problem, which is that like, my cousin didn't really know what he was doing. I really didn't know what I was doing. And so like, we kind of won it, right? And so we get to the boat launch, and there's a bit of an adventure just getting the boat backed up, because my cousin had done that before, but we finally got the boat in the water, sitting on the trailer, ready to launch the boat. And this particular boat had, had two straps that ran like, kind of over the top of the boat and onto the trailer, kind of hold it in place. And so my cousin assumed that those straps right, were attached to the trailer on the bottom. And so he unclapped it on the top of the boat and kind of dropped it into the water, assuming they were attached. Needless to say, those straps weren't actually attached to the trailer, and so they were just sitting on the bottom of the lake. That doesn't like a huge deal, right? Because the water's relatively shallow there. We know right where we dropped it. The lake is clear. There's no current to carry off the straps. Like, surely it won't be hot, hard to find these straps. That was true for one of them. Found that one pretty quick. We just, just kind of saw it sitting there on the bottom of the lake. So we reached in, grabbed it. But the other one was not so easy to find. Like we couldn't see it anywhere. Like didn't know what to do. And so my cousin like, stripped down to his underwear, jumped in the water, and like started walking around the water trying to find, feel with his feet, trying to find this strap. Finally, after what felt like hours, he did find it. But it was quite the ordeal to find this strap that fell in clear, still lake water. We knew exactly where we dropped it. So it's that hard to find that strap in that clear, still lake water. Just imagine trying to find an axe head that was dropped into a dirty, flowing river, like probably at an imprecise location. Like I imagine he's like shopping with his axe and it goes flying off. He doesn't know exactly where it goes. And so like, he's not going to find it in the river. We talked about last week how the Jordan's dirty... Right? It, was, it was hopeless. The axe head was, was lost. Until so this prophet who had lost this axe head is, has a problem. And the problem wasn't, wasn't trivial. Right? It was kind of a big deal. Surely in that moment, for him, it, it felt like a, like a big deal. But in the grand scheme of things, right, it wasn't a monumental issue. It wasn't a matter of life and death. It wasn't utterly going to destroy his life. Like, sure, it was unfortunate. Yes, it was inconvenient. Like, it's going to cost him some money, but it wasn't going to be the end of him. In the grand scheme of things, there was a rather mundane problem. I think people face similar problems all the time today. Right? The water heater dies. The car won't start. Get laid off of your job. Come down with a, with a, a serious, but ultimately non-life-threatening illness. 
These are issues right, that feel big to the person who's going through them in the moment, but in the grand scheme of things are relatively mundane. In a world where 9 million people die of starvation every year, needing to spend $1,000 on car repairs isn't comparatively that big. And likewise, like the prophet losing an axe head, like, in the grand scheme of things, isn't that big a deal. But even though it's relatively insignificant, even though it's mundane, doesn't mean that God didn't care. We see that in verses 6 and 7. Where did it fall, the man of God asked. When he showed him the place, Elijah cut a stick and threw it into the water at that spot. Then the axe had floated to the surface. Grab it, Elisha said. And the man reached out and grabbed it. And this is such a just unique story in, in the Bible. This story takes place in the book of Kings, like, which is primarily, literally about kings. Right? It's about the rise and fall of nations. It's about these events of huge geopolitical importance. And then right in the middle, there's this little story about an axe head that gets dropped in a river. Imagine like taking a U.S. history course, and you're in the middle of your textbook, and right between like, the end of the Civil War and the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, there's like a story about a farmer in Iowa whose tractor broke down. Like, that's what this feels like, right? Like, we have all these big things going on, and then right in the middle there's this guy who loses, loses an axe head. Right? But this story, I think, is here for an important reason. It's here to show us that God is present in the mundane. Like God cared about all the concerns of his children. This story shows us that we can take all our cares to God. In 1 Peter 5, 7, we're told to, to give all your worries and cares to God, for He cared about you. There is no problem too small to bring before God. You don't have to worry about God getting annoyed that you're bothering Him with such small or trivial concerns. He is both the God who oversees world events and the God who gives us our daily bread and our access. Like God knows your needs. right? No matter how mundane, no matter how small they may seem, He knows your needs. And He delights to have you bring those needs before Him. And He delights to meet those needs. He may not always meet them in like obviously miraculous ways, the way He does here. He may have time to choose to use more ordinary means. But he delights to meet even our, our small needs. Perhaps my favorite example of this from, from our own life. I've told this story before in, in cross training, so if you've heard it, bear with me, but it's worth telling. And my favorite story of God's provision over relatively minor needs happened when I was in seminary. Vanessa and I were, were driving back from back to Louisville from Minnesota. So for every time on that particular trip, instead of taking the conventional route we normally took, which took us kind of across Wisconsin on 94, and then through, around Chicago, and then down all of Indiana into Louisville, like that's the normal path we took. But for whatever reason, this time, we decided we would take a different route. And we would, we would go straight south first, down into Iowa, 
and then cut west across Iowa and Illinois and Indiana before finally turning south again and continuing on to Louisville. One of the appeals of this route for me is that it avoids a lot of traffic. Right? You avoid Milwaukee, you avoid Chicago, you avoid lots of traffic. It takes you through some just exceptionally rural areas of Iowa and Illinois. Right? Like just cornfield and cornfield and cornfield and cornfield. <laughs> Which is still preferable to the traffic, right? Like, at least for me, like I just hate traffic. And so I was like, yeah, I'll do cornfields all day. And it's great until your muffler falls off. <laughs> Which is what happened to us. Like, we're in the middle of nowhere, Illinois, and all of a sudden, a sudden thunk. And all of a sudden, you just hear the sound of metal being dragged behind our car as our, our muffler hangs on for dear life as it being dragged behind us. So I pull over, and I, I see what the problem is. And I go, what are we going to do? Like, we're, there's cornfields there, and cornfields there, and, like, cornfields. Like, what are we going to do? Like, I'm not the handy type, okay? Like, it's not something I'm going to fix. But, but the first sign of God's provision of this whole situation is that, like, it was less than a mile to what felt like the first exit in, like, hundreds of miles. So less than a mile ahead of us, there's this exit. And so we crawl on the side of the road, dragging our muffler behind us, like, to this exit. And we, we take the exit, and that... The base of this exit, as we get off the highway, like, there are two things there. There's a laundromat, and there's an independent mechanic. Right? Now, I should mention, right, this, is, this is either Memorial Day or Labor Day. Right? I can't remember which one, one of the two. Right? But like, people are closed. Everything's closed. Like, even if we had thought, been in a big city and found like, a big city mechanic, like, no one's open on Memorial Day or Labor Day. Right? But we... We get there, so we, we pull over, we see this laundromat, we see this mechanic, and that's interesting, but it's clearly closed, it's dark, there's no one around, it's late afternoon on Memorial Day or Labor Day, so it doesn't seem like it helps all that much. But Vanessa sees, there's a phone number on the sign, and so she just calls the number. It turned out that that number was the mechanic's personal cell phone number. It turned out that Vanessa's call had wakes this mechanic from a nap that he had with taking, he'd just gotten back from like this weekend long, long weekend like trip on his mo- motorcycle. He'd just gotten back, he'd taken a nap, but he answers the call anyway, and it turned out he lives right across the street. And he agrees to come over, and he, he looks over at the car, and he sees what happened, and he says something like, oh yeah, I can fix that pretty easy. Which he then proceeds to do. It took him like 10 minutes to like cut some stuff and weld some stuff. I don't know what he did, he, but it's, it's better. Like, it took him hardly any time at all. And then he, like, refused to charge us for his work. He said it's on our way. Like, all told, it probably, like, less than an hour from the time that we had our muffler detached to the time we were back on the road to, to Louisville. And, like, in the big picture, like, our muffler falling off wasn't a big deal. Even if that guy hadn't been there, we would have survived. We would have figured something out. It would have been fine. But in that moment, when I first heard that thunk, like, and I like, walked around the car and saw the muffler just kind of laying on the ground, like, it felt like a big deal. And in that midst of our relatively mundane concern, that felt like a big deal to us. Like God was present, and God was willing to provide for us. So I just 
My hope is that you would take encouragement from like the story of the floating axe head. I pray that you'd be encouraged to trust that, that God is present with you, that God desires to show you His grace. In the midst of all your cares, all your concerns, no matter how small they may seem, would you trust that God is present and willing to help? Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your cares on the Lord, and He will sustain you. It doesn't say, Cast your biggest cares on the Lord. Or if it doesn't say, Cast your really big, important cares on the Lord. It just says, Cast your cares. All of them. Any of them. And trust that He will sustain you. God is present, even in these mundane moments of life. These, these small concerns that feel big in the moment. God is there and God is present and God delights to show Himself in those moments. Of course, he's also present in, in the monumental concern of life. We see that in 2 Kings 6 as we continue on. Starting in verse 8, we read this. When the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, We will mobilize our forces and at, at such and such a place. But immediately, Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel, Do not go near that place. For the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send a word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on alert there. The king of Aram became very upset over this. He called his officers together and demanded, Which of you is the traitor? Who have been informing the king of Israel of, of my plans? It is not us, my lord the king. One of the officers said, Elisha, Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tell the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom, go out and find where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. And the report came back, Elisha is at Dothan. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. I find this whole scenario kind of amusing. Right? So Aram and Israel are at war, and God is revealing to Elisha where the king of Aram is going to deploy troops. And then Elisha is passing that information on to the king of Israel, and that's obviously frustrating the king of Aram. So he, he finds out that Elisha is behind exposing his troop movement, and so he wants Elisha eliminated. But this is what I find so amusing. Like his, his thought process seems to be, oh, you know that Elisha guy who, who always knows where I'm going to send my troops? Like, let's send troops to catch him. He'll never see it coming. Like, like how, what, how's that going to work? Like, Elisha knows all that the king of Aram's doing, and yet the king of Aram thinks he can trap Elisha. Nevertheless, in this case, Elisha stays at Dothan, and things start to look bleak. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops and horses and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. 
to that, that servant of Elisha, that must have seemed like an absurd statement. There's Elisha, maybe a couple of servants, going up against hundreds of troops and chariots and horses. Like, what does he mean that they're more on our side than on their side? But then Elisha prays, O oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see. So the Lord opened the young man's eyes. And when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots and fire. I often, often sing songs to our, our kids before bed. And one of the most requested songs from them is the song, Whom Shall I Fear by, by Chris Tomlin. And I won't, I won't sing it to you now. That kind of torture is reserved for my, for my kids and for the people online when my mic's not muted. But the chorus, the chorus of that song goes, I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. And that, that line, like, the God of angel armies is always by my side. That's a, that's a powerful line. If we believe that it's true that God commands angel armies, and the answer to the question, whom shall I fear, is no one. Earlier this morning, we, we heard the story of the shepherd having the encounter with the angels. And the very first thing the angel says to them is, like, don't be afraid. Oftentimes we picture those, those angels as like a, a chorus of sweet harmonious angels or whatever, but like the, the imagery that's there in Luke, the imagery of like these warrior army of angels, that's why they have to say, don't be afraid. They're seeing the same thing that Elisha sees here, these, these warriors fighting for God lined up behind. And so, that's true, right? that if God has angels ready to fight at his request. And there's, there's nothing we should fear. And Elisha modeled that for us here. As the Aramean army advanced toward him, Elisha prayed, O Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And this probably wasn't like a physical blindness, but some sort of, of mental confusion. And then Elisha went out and told them, You have come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me, and I will take you to the man you're looking for. And he led them to the city of Samaria. As soon as they had entered Samaria, Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel. And the these troops from Aram had been sent to capture Elisha, and now they find themselves surrounded by the full strength of Israel's army. When the king of Israel saw them, he shouted to Elisha, My father, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Of course not, Elisha replied. Do we kill prisoners of war? Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So the king made a great feast for them and then sent them home to their master. After that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. 
So the second story here in the chapter shows us that God is present in the monumental. In matters of life and death, in matters of war and geopolitical issues, God is present and God is in control. Just that there is no matter too small, so to be below God's concern, there is no matter so big that God can't reign over it. May not always choose to intervene. May not always be His will to save the lives of His children the way He saved Elisha's life here. But God is always with and for His people. Because of that truth, or because that we trust that God is with us and God is sovereign over all events, we can live in peace and not in fear. And nowhere are these truths more clear than, than in the person and work of, of Jesus. When a mob came to arrest Jesus, one of his disciples drew a sword. And he, he cut off a man's ear. And in re- reply, Jesus said, Put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Then he said this, Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. Jesus knew that, just like Elijah, he had heaven's armies at his back. Yet he did not call on them. Tell us why in the next verse. He says, But how then will the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And the scriptures he's referring to say that the Messiah would come that he would suffer for his people, that he would bear his people's iniquities, and he would pay for their sins. Jesus did not call heaven's army to his defense. Because his going to the cross and suffering in our place was the only way that our sins could be forgiven, that our soul could be saved. Paul tells us that. While we were still God's enemies, Christ came and he, he died for us. And when we heard we were his enemies, he, he loved us. I find it interesting that here in 2 Kings 6, right, when the enemies show up in Israel, surrounded, trapped, ready to be killed. Elisha doesn't say, kill him. He says, feed him. Give him a feast. Treat him well. The same thing Jesus does for us. Like we were his enemies living in his kingdom. We were his to do with as he pleased. But he didn't say, kill him. This would have been what our sin deserved. He, he came for us, he came to die in our place on the cross. Because he loved us, even when we were his enemies. The way Elisha shows love to these Arameans. Jesus is the ultimate demonstration that, that God is present in the monumental. Right? There is nothing more important, more monumental than each of our eternal destinies. And Jesus came to make eternal life with God possible. But Jesus is also present in the mundane. 
Jesus turned water into wine to save a party. Jesus, he died on a cross to save your soul. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And he taught them, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus was present in and cared about both the mundane and the monumental. And he desired that you would, you would seek him, you would cry out to him in the midst of all of life's trials, big or small. Would you trust right, that he is able, he is willing to meet all your needs? It may not always be in the way you would expect or through the means you would expect, but he is able to meet each and every need. He does it for your good and for his glory. And in communion, we get a chance to, to remember all that Jesus did. Remember the, the big things he did. Remember the, the small things he did for each of us. As we, we take bread, we remember that his body was broken. We take take the juice, remember that his, his blood was spilled for each and every one of us. Remember that he did all of that to, to save our souls, to meet our most monumental need. So this morning we're going to take communion together as a way of reminding ourselves of that. So in just a few minutes I'm going to invite you to come down the side aisles here, either one of the two stations up front, and then return to your seat. You can grab both the juice and the bread on your way. You return to your seat. You can hold on to it. We will partake of each element together towards the end. There are gluten-free elements in the wicker basket on the back of each table if you need one of those. If it's easier for you to not stand and come forward, you'd rather just stay in your seat, you can raise your hand and I will bring you elements on the tray. But if you think I invite you to come and stand, take the elements, return to your seats, so when everyone has them, we will partake together. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way you love us, the way you care for us. That there is no concern we have that is too small for you. There is no global event that is too big for you. You are sovereign over all. You are aware of all. You care about each and every one of our concern. We praise you. We thank you that in your infinite wisdom and in your infinite love and care for each one of us, your ability to meet our needs, your wisdom and how to meet our needs is greater than our own. So I pray for each one of us here that we would trust you. 
that at need arrived, we would cry out to you, we would run to you in prayer. But also that we would trust that your means of meeting our needs is, is wiser than our own. Human wisdom never would have come up with the cross. Yet you and your infinite love and wisdom sent Jesus to die in our place. Jesus is the ultimate expression of your love and care for us. And we thank you for him. As we take communion together now, we would be reminded of who Jesus is, all that he's done for us. Because of all that he's done, we can have great joy knowing that whatever trials we face in this life there's coming a day when we will worship together with you around your throne at the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's coming a day when there will be new heavens and new earth and you will set all things right. There will be no more pain or suffering. That in that day, every need will be perfectly and fully met. But until that day comes, it will be Live trusting your goodness, trusting your care for us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to come. If you need element brought to you, go ahead and raise your hand.
Jesus. The night he would betray, he took bread and he, he broke it. And when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. supper to the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me partake father thank you for chance to remember. Thank you for broken body and the spilled blood of our Savior. Thank you that when we were your enemies, when we did not deserve it. You loved us enough to send your son. So we may have joy and hope and peace. Father, thank you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you go this morning? Would you go trusting, believing, confident that, that God is with you in all your cares and all your concerns, both the mundane and the monumental? You are dismissed.